the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. It reads like a laundry list that could have been created by the devil himself. Terrorist attacks, mass shooting attacks on campuses, political strife, racism, economic instability, moral decline, church attendance decline, certainly true here in the San Francisco Bay Area. And it has to make you pause and wonder as we take account of what's going on not only on the the stage um, morally, spiritually, politically across the globe, but certainly here at home, exactly what's going on. Where is the church? Where should we as Christians be in addressing all of this? Because we know ultimately the insights and the key to not only what's wrong, but what the solution is, is ultimately found in Scripture. A very special conference coming to the San Francisco Bay Area this weekend. We'll give you more details on that. But uh, meanwhile, I'd like to invite into our conversation tonight Pastor Andrew Chavaria. He is pastor at Elkhart Church of Christ, a U.S. Army veteran, co-founder of Liberty Cannon Media Group, the executive director of the Truth and Liberty Foundation, and speaks all across the country on the topic of uh, culture, God, government, and where our nation is today, where it's headed spiritually, and most importantly, where is the church we need to be? And Andrew, great to have you on the program. Hey, thanks for having me on. Uh, we appreciate the opportunity. Boy, you know, kind of uh, taking the temperature, so to speak, morally and spiritually of where America is at today, it, it would seem that not only are we in trouble, but many would wonder, where does the church stand in all of this? I mean, it wasn't all that long ago that the mainstream church in America seemed to be supercharged politically. That certainly was true in the 1980s. We were on the cutting edge of, of addressing many moral and spiritual issues, uh, both from the pulpit as well as uh, from a political standpoint. But it seems as if in, in recent years there's kind of been an atrophying of not only the, the church's um, influence in the governance of our nation, but but even in terms of just our, our overall influence in, in the day-to-day uh, life in America. Why is that? You know, I, I think it boils down to, to uh, the simple aspect of turnover. Uh, when you think about, and what I mean by that is we've lost some of the wise and old leadership that we had in the 80s, and we've now turned to individuals that grew up in the 60s and the 70s, those that grew up during the sexual revolution, and uh, those that grew up in a day and age where, uh, quite frankly, uh, the theory of evolution and all of these things during the space race kind of rude the day in the classroom. And um, quite simply, I think Abraham Lincoln put it best. He said the philosophy of the classroom in one generation will be the philosophy of the government in the next. And uh, we now see what happens when you remove God. I mean, when you start about 1965, uh, 1965, we start removing God from the classroom. We start, uh, we start uh, going, going progressively through the years. We remove the Bible from classrooms. We remove prayer from classrooms. Um, then we start getting into the 70s, and now abortion becomes the norm with Roe v. Wade. Uh, then you get into the 90s. Homosexuality uh, gets on the platform. 
and uh, now you get into the 2000s and it's it's the law of the land. Well, how did all of this happen? Well, it happens because people that grew up already sensitizing themselves to this aspect of life kind of just just stay back. And, and, you know, like I said, I mean, Abraham Lincoln said it best. This is now the philosophy of our government. And we now live in a place and time where um, I think, and then this is just my personal philosophy. It's one of the reasons that I travel the country talking about this stuff. Um, I think that it's also weighed heavy on our pulpits. Our pulpits aren't the same anymore. They're so watered down and uh, preaching a, a, you know, they're, they're basically giving people a stick of cotton candy when they walk through the door and there's no truth being preached anymore. So really, in, in a large sense, then this is sort of the product of erosion. I mean, the, the old saying that yeah. the drip becomes the trickle that turns into the stream that becomes the river. And before you know it, it's cut the Grand Canyon. And in some respects, while we can't point to any singular event that um, is at the center of this. It's many of the events. It, it, it's, uh, you know, kicking God out of the classroom. Uh, you know, dare we put up the Ten Commandments to encourage students to do things like, I don't know, not steal, not kill, not lie, obey their parents, things of that sort. And so all of a sudden, then, you have a combination of what's taking place not only at the institutional level, within public education, certainly within right. higher education, the body politic, then we add to that. I think you're right. Some some levels of frustration in the pulpit in America today that, and certainly this is not meant to be a blanket accusation, Pastor, no. but there are some pastors, I think, that would conclude that, you know, if I I get up there and I start preaching sin, salvation, sanctification, start really talking about the tough, serious stuff that we see in Scripture, there'll be nobody there on Sunday morning. And, you know, we've got to pay an electric light bill and I have a salary that has to be paid. And, you know, we need to put new carpeting in the church. So I'm going to have to go a little bit easier on all of this. And as a result, we end up watering down the effectiveness of the gospel to the point where it has no effect. Right. And, and to me, when, when that happens, and, and I mean, it, it's textbook. You see churches like this popping up everywhere, um, you know, multi-million dollar buildings. They have the whole, you know, the whole band, the lights, the smoke, everything like that, uh, to draw people to come in and do those things. And the sermon is just so fluffy that you just really don't get anything out of it. But I, I think what that is a product of is that's a product of Christians who have lost their identity. You know, when we, when we start, and here's what I mean by that. So many people think that you go to church. And here's the thing, and this is coming from a guy that stands up almost every single Sunday behind a pulpit somewhere. If not my home church, I'm somewhere preaching and teaching the gospel. So, so just, you know, just stick with me when I say it, because I'm kind of talking to myself. But you don't come to church. You go to worship God. The Bible actually teaches Christians that we are the church. We're the ones that are called out. And when we get that in our mind, when we start realizing that that is our identity, we are the church, and we stop going to church, and we start going to worship God, it doesn't matter what the pastor, the preacher, the evangelist, the reverend, the minister, I don't care what you call it, it doesn't matter what he says. If it's true, you're there to worship God, and you're going to accept it. So then the real distinction here is the difference between going to church and being the church. Yep. And that's why we are where we are today. And the, the catalyst that, that this has happened, the reason that this has happened, is because of the pulpit. Um, you know, Charles Finney is probably one of my favorite characters during the American Revolution. He was a, he was a cleric during the American Revolution. And he actually says, I mean, and I'm just going to kind of quote this pretty quick, but he says, Brethren, our preaching will bear its legitimate fruits. If immorality prevails in the land, the fault is ours in a great degree. Mm. Listen to what he says next, though. He says, if there's, if there's a decay of conscience, the pulpit is responsible for it. He says, if the press, if the public press lacks moral discrimination, the pulpit is responsible for it. 
if the church grows degenerate and worldly, the pulpit is responsible for it. He goes on and he says, if the world loses interest in religion, that's key right now. That's, you, you talked about in the introduction that so many people, even in the Bay Area, to a low attendance uh, in churches. If people lose interest in religion, he says the pulpit's responsible for it. But I want you to see what happens next, because this is what we're talking about, the climate of where we are as a nation right now. He says if Satan rules in the halls of legislation, the pulpit is responsible for it. If our politics become so corrupt that the very foundation of our government is ready to fall away, the pulpit is responsible for it. Then he concludes, he says, let us not ignore this fact, my dear brethren, but let us lay to heart and be thoroughly awake to our responsibility in respect to the morals of this nation. The reason that Charles Finney could speak so boldly that way is because when we declared our independence, when we declared our independence, the king did not attribute George Washington. He did not attribute the Continental Army. He did not attribute the militia and the Minutemen. The, per, the, the people that they attributed American independence to, that our enemy attributed American independence to, was a group that he called the Black Robe Regiment. It was the pastors and the preachers of the day. He said it's because they're preaching truth and they're preaching liberty in Christ and they're preaching what we don't want them to preach. And that's where America spurned its freedom from. The pulpit was responsible for American freedom. Well, ironically enough, uh, you know, even a a stranger to our land, a visitor, uh, de Tocqueville, made the exact same observation in terms of the impact and importance of what takes place at the pulpit. I mean, at the end of the day, uh, we have to recognize, and when we talk about things such as a moral code, that the Bible is the standard setter, but it is the church that is the standard bearer. And if we're not willing to bear the standard that Scripture sets for us and make that proclamation from the pulpit and live it out in the pews— uh, then I think the observations of, of, of Finney, as, as uncomfortable as they may be, are perhaps sadly bang on. We'll take a brief time out. We'll come back to more of our conversation. Our special guest in this segment of the program is Pastor Andrew Chavaria as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. One of the issues here perhaps at hand is we're sort of um, doing some quarterbacking and analysis of what's happened in the, the moral and spiritual decline in America in the last generation, maybe going on two generations now. One of, I think, the issues uh, that is contributory to all of this uh, is the perception, real or otherwise, that there is a tremendous amount of disunity within the body of Christ. Now, let me hasten to add, some people say, well, you know, that's the problem with doctrine. Doctrine divides. Well, doctrine should divide. Uh, there is a reason why Christ even himself talked about separating the wheat from the chaff. So good, sound doctrine is critically important. That's not the kind of disunity I'm talking about. It's the sense of everybody kind of their own corner, doing their own thing, um, not not giving much concern to a sense of, of cooperation with one one mind, one heart, one spirit, uh, one goal of what Christ has called us to do, uh, to love our God, to love our neighbors as we love ourselves, and of course to go about uh, the Great Commission and sharing the gospel in all the world. I think the effectiveness of that really is compromised when there is a tremendous sense of disunity about the body in many respects just because we're too busy doing our own thing, or we feel uh, intimidated because somebody may be a little bit more successful in one arena 
arena or another than we are. And so, you know, rather than working together, we shy away from it because we feel a, a bit intimidated. Uh, what about that perspective, uh, Pastor Chavarria? Is this issue of, of a lack of unity contributory to this problem? You know, I, I think it is. I really think it is. I think the modern American church uh, today is so disjointed that that's why we can't find a foothold um, in making America what Ronald Reagan called that shining city on a hill. Um, you know, and we're, we're so disjointed to the part. There is, you're right, sound doctrine is needed. I mean, you know, one of the ways that I break it down for, and this kind of makes it real for people, is the Bible took about approximately 1,600 years to write. It was 40 different authors, 300 years between the two testaments where God didn't reveal himself to anyone. Then you have those 40 different guys that you have to talk about that didn't ever cross paths, but the central message is Jesus. And God took a lot of time to preserve all of that for us. And uh, when you think about it that way, you know, it's really easy to say, you know, God said what he meant, and he meant what he said. And one of the things that God says in the Word, in the book of 1 Corinthians, is uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 11, Paul says, let there be no divisions among you. You know, the, the nom- I, I'm a part of a group, uh, it's called the Radicals, and uh, we all have different, quote-unquote, denominational backgrounds. Everybody has a different denominational background. Uh, but we all agreed, and everybody's a Christian leader or a pastor or a preacher somewhere. But we started this group together. We meet every Tuesday night uh, on, a, on a video platform, and we all started meeting together. And, and among us, there's millions of people that follow us on social media and, and, uh, and come to our churches and hear us preach. We all agreed that it was time in America to break down the walls of denominationalism and to start being Christians. That's it. The Bible doesn't, you know, it's funny, the Bible doesn't mention the word, and I know this might step on some people's toes, but if you want to hear and understand more about what I'm going to say, we'll talk about the event that I'm talking about later. But the Bible never says Catholic. The Bible never says Pentecostal. The Bible never says Baptist. The Bible never says Methodist. The Bible calls those that follow after Jesus Christians. And when we start following Jesus and we start deciding to be Christians, Man, that's unity. That's oneness. We have the doctrine. The doctrine is the Word of God. That's the Bible. We have that. And if we can stick to that and we just call ourselves Christian, we will turn, not not the nation, we'll turn the world upside down. Of course, one of the other challenges I think that's contributory that goes hand in hand with that, and not only that sense of, of competition as opposed to cooperation, but also the fact that sometimes there's so much of an emphasis on, on doing as opposed to being, and I think that goes to the heart of another big issue, and that is just a, a lack of really understanding what true discipleship <laughs> really looks like. People think I show up to church on Sunday morning, drop a couple of bucks in the offering plate, uh, you know, whenever there's a bake sale, I always be sure to contribute, and they think that therefore qualifies them uh, as a quote-unquote Christian, but they've never been through a discipleship process, they don't know how to pray, they don't know how to read the Word, they've never shared their faith with another person. Right, right. We just basically convert people, and then we throw them to the wolves and expect them to be mature Christians, and it's just never going to work. Yeah, when it doesn't work out, then we wonder why. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it never, it's never worked out that way. And that's what we do, honestly, and that's what we're doing to our young people today. And if you look, um, we're losing probably about 70%, 60 to 70% of our youth groups leave the church and don't come back by the time they hit college age. We're losing them to, sec- we're losing them to secular progressivism. Mm. And, uh, and, and that, that's a big, that's a staggering number, 60 to 70%. In the churches of Christ, it's higher than that. It's 75 to 80%. 
Um, but I, you know, like I said, I preach for, I'll, I'll preach at any church they want me to come and speak at. Uh, but, but here's the thing. Here's the thing with that. And it, it's, it's very simple. It's very simple because I, I mentioned the word identity. I'm a, I'm a big talker when it comes to identity. And um, one of the things that people like to pawn off now, and you've probably heard it said, um, people probably said it. I know I've said it. We tell people all the time, hey, I'm just I'm, I'm a sinner just like you. And, and that's true to a degree, but I'm not a sinner anymore. I'm saved. And, and the reason that we tell people I'm a sinner just like you is because of the next phrase that we say after that. We tell people, because, you know, look, man, all you have to do is follow Jesus. That's it. All you have to do is follow Jesus. But Paul, you know, going back to the book of 1 Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians 11, uh, Paul says, follow me or imitate me as I imitate Christ. You see, we, and Jesus, in the Great Commission, in Matthew 28 and Mark 16, he tells us to go and make disciples. You know, so we have a responsibility as Christians to be an example and to disciple, teach them in the ways in which to follow after Jesus. And we don't want to do that anymore. So we just tell people, hey, I'm a sinner just like you. All you have to do is follow Jesus, because that takes the whole, don't, don't follow me. Don't. But here's the thing. Me as a Christian, as a church leader, I want people to follow me. I want people behind me, because that means that there's somebody behind me to catch me when I fall. That means that there's somebody behind me to lift me up when I'm down. You know, so it's okay to teach somebody, and, and we don't want to be vulnerable, but you have to be vulnerable when it comes to following Jesus, because it's an ultimate act of submission. Well, moreover, that whole notion of iron sharpening iron, that seems yeah. to be a component that's sort of missing, and I think that's also been uh, part of the, the, the fallout of the so-called megachurch movement, yeah. and that is that it becomes so impersonal, so disconnected, that there's not that, that human touch, that intimacy, that iron sharpening iron that yeah. Scripture talks of, that is ne- necessary to take place for, I think, true discipleship to form. Yeah. Now, that said, let's talk about um, this um, spiritual renewal weekend. Give us details, if you would, Andrew. Yeah, normally when I, I go and speak somewhere, it's Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and uh, one of the things that I, that I want to do over the, over three days, I'm going to be, I'm going to do six lessons in three days um, on being one. So it doesn't matter what your faith background is. You don't have to be a member of the Church of Christ to come to this event. If you, if you, if you have, if you're going to a community church, if you're going to, it doesn't matter what kind of church you're going to, we want you to come to this event, because here's the thing, is, um, and here's what I'm going to be focusing on. In Ephesians chapter 2, beginning at verse 12, the, the, the writer says the word, he uses the first word, the word is remember. So this is something for all of us that we all have to remember, that you one time were separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in this world. We've all been there. We've all not had this hope. Well, you know what God did give us? God did give us hope. In verse 19 of that same chapter, he says, So then, now you're no longer strangers and aliens, but now you're a fellow citizen with the saints and are in God's household. If you and I, and it doesn't matter where we came from, it doesn't matter who we are, it doesn't matter how much money we make, what we wear, how much clothes, you know, what we drive, none of that's going to matter. If you are willing to follow Jesus and make Jesus your identity, you're not going to be a stranger anymore, and you're going to be a citizen of God's household. And what we want to talk about over these three days is renew our spirits to be one household. This sense of, of the, the, the sense of cooperation, the sense of working together, the, the sense of building each other up. Because only when we start to do that will we start building our nation back up.
Andrew, if folks want to get more information about this, uh, where's the best place for them to go? Uh, AndrewShavaria.com. It's, uh, it's a long last name. I know C-H-A-V-A-R-R-I-L-L-A. Andrew, before that, AndrewShavaria.com. Um, or find me on Twitter. There's a link straight to my, my website on Twitter. It's at Church Patriot. It's really easy. Uh, if you follow me on Twitter, you'll be able to find my Facebook, my website, and all the times and the dates and everything are listed there. And, of course, you know, even if you just Google it, you know, uh, <laughs> bowing to the difficulty of your last name, I yeah. found if you just Google Andrew and just get into Shava, R-I-L, yeah. you'll, you'll, you'll find him that way, too. Or, again, the Twitter at, at Church Patriot. Well, Andrew, we appreciate the time and the insights and encourage listeners, hey, this is a good way to get a deeper understanding about what Christ wants for the church when he prayed that we would all be one what does not only that that look like but what does it mean in terms of being able to increase the effectiveness and the impact of the church on the world around us as i said earlier while the bible is the standard setter the church is the standard bearer our thanks to pastor andrew chavaria for being with us tonight on this segment of lifeline And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Let's talk about some battle lines being drawn that is comprised of entertainment, the Internet, Madison Avenue, social media, even institutionalized enemies of your beliefs and values. And it is a battle for the hearts and minds of your children. What can we do to be better prepared to wage or protect our children in the middle of this battle? Well, a look today at 30 ways, 30 days to strengthen your family. And uh, joining me tonight is the author of this new book, former vice president of the Heritage Foundation, also serves currently on the board of directors for Dr. James Dobson's Family Talk. And a new book out tonight, again, 30 ways in 30 days to strengthen your family, newly published by David C. Cook Publications. And Rebecca Heglin, great to have you on the program. Hey, thank you. It's an honor for me to finally be on the air with you. Thank you. Well, you know, I think we as parents understand that there's a battle afoot here. Uh, The problem is really understanding how these battle lines are drawn, Rebecca, and I guess understanding, too, and you you make this differentiation very early on in your book, that we need to be able to, to divide in our mind the understanding that our battle here is not really with our children, though many parents would feel like that that's exactly what they're doing battle with. But in reality, the real battle here is with the culture, isn't it? Yep, that's exactly right. Um, You know, I wanted to provide a handbook for parents so they could face, um, you know, the world and trying to raise their children with character with some help. And one of the chapters in there is called Battle the Culture, Not Your Child. And what it encourages parents to do is just kind of sit back and reflect on the fact that, hey, it is adult that are designing the pornographic websites. Adults are designing the songs for 10-year-old girls. Adults are designing the raunchy music that so many children um, are being pummeled with. Your battle's not with your child. Your battle is frequently with adults who have a different worldview than you do. And they're vying for the dollars that today's youth spends. I mean, our children today are the most affluent, children in the history of the world, and the fact that they, for the first time in many generations, um, have their own disposable income. And 
the marketers know that. And so they're after that share of the pie. And unfortunately, what they've learned how to do, there's also a chapter called Learn How Marketers Target Your Children, which is a study into um, how executives of a lot of these companies, MTV in particular, brag about not how they know what teenagers want, but they brag about how they've learned to manipulate the teenage mind. And so it's important for parents to understand this. Um, and then once parents read at least those couple chapters to sit down and go over them with their children too, because then it becomes you and your child against the world versus you against your child. And you know, the and irony is really important. For, for our parents, when they raised us, of course, the environment, uh, the culture and times in which we lived was very different. Today, I- these battles and the battle lines are being drawn in, as you're suggesting, Rebecca, in a number of different uh, arenas. I mean, it's not just Madison Avenue and the disposable income that your children have access to, and they're being viewed as all potential customers from... Uh, virtually the age of zero on up. But then, too, there are individuals out there that have a social engineering agenda that that uh, it really draws a battle line. And then outright exploitation, too. Yep, absolutely. I mean, in, in America, it used to be that the social institutions, by and large, came along beside parents and helped them. Um, today, you have a lot of educators, and certainly the NEA is is driving a wedge between parents and their children, telling parents they're not smart enough, that you know that they know better, uh, the teachers know better, that you don't really have any rights once your kids go in the schoolhouse door. And even the medical profession has changed a lot in the fact they used to help support parents raise children of character. I actually have a story in there about taking my daughter, who was 12 years old, for a sports physical. And the pediatrician, female pediatrician, actually, after she did the physical, asked me to leave the room because she said she needed to talk privately with my daughter. And I go through the story of how I said, "Uh, no, I will stay here for anything you have to say to my daughter. And the long to make a long story short the point is that i did some research after that and uh, the american academy of pediatrics is actually encouraging doctors to ask parents to leave the room so the doctors can talk to the children about sexual information um and what the doctor was trying to share with my daughter is hey it's up to you to do what you feel um some people believe sex is you know only for marriage but you get to decide that at 12 years old um and so this is a book that really shows how the social institutions are um, undermining um, parents and families and what to do to fight back and how to do so joyfully, I might add. And, of course, that, that is key because at the end of the day, I think parents sometimes, you know, we're busy with careers and responsibilities that parents have to pay the mortgage and uh, pay tuition at school and, and do all of that. And then on top of it, trying to raise a child um, in an environment that is God-honoring with the kind of uh, values that we'd like to see passed on to our sons and daughters. And sometimes I think parents grow weary in the middle of this battle and all of a sudden now they're becomes confusion. It seems as if we're battling our child, not battling the culture. So how do we differentiate between the two? And most importantly, how can we engage our child in a, at a level in which we can really have not only 
effective communication, but also walk away with a sense that uh, they're getting what we're trying to say, even with the so-called, uh, uh, you know, uh, gender or, or uh, uh, age gap. We're visiting today with Rebecca Heglin. The book is called 30 Ways in 30 Days to Strengthen Your Family. And when we come back, we're going to talk about an important key as we kind of go over some of the highlights of the book, including this notion that just like soldiers at war, we ourselves must commit to this battle on behalf of our children daily. Our conversation with Rebecca Hegeling continues right after this. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. And as we're learning this afternoon from author Rebecca Hagelin and the new book she's written called 30 Ways in 30 Days to Strengthen Your Family. It's not the battlefield for the heart and mind of your child. It's the battlefields, plural, be it media, advertising, social engineering, uh, those that would literally um, uh, prey upon your children in the arena of sex trade, pedophilia, even the pressure that they receive from their peers, all comes together to conspire against the parent who is really trying in this day and age to uh, train up a child in the way that he or she should go and uh, have love and respect and uh, live to a set of, of moral codes or moral values that you and your faith have established for your son or daughter. And of course, one of the issues at play here is that, as I mentioned before the break, Rebecca, parents can get weary and tired, but this um, this is much like a real war, isn't it? In that the soldiers need to commit and recommit to this on a daily basis if we're ever going to have any chance of winning. Yeah, I call it purposeful parenting. And you really do have to get up in your heart every day uh, committed to this battle because guess what? The pornographers don't start. The people who are teaching our children that they're just here by accident, you know, um, there's some advanced form of primordial ooze, they don't stop. The garbage on television or the internet doesn't stop. So what I did when I was a parent of three teenagers simultaneously, I started waking up with a simple prayer in my heart, which went something like this, and I've got it in the chapter on Commit to the Daily Battle. Dear Lord, please help me today, on this one day, to stand up for the principles that you've set for my family, to to touch my children in some deep and meaningful way in their heart, so that I know that they know that I love them and I'm there for them and I have their backs. Just give me enough grace on this one day to be courageous and joyful, Lord. And and I can tell you, if you break it down day by day, you can do this. And you can find great joy because when you share truth with your children, you help them determine between truth and lies. Great joy and freedom comes from that. Um, you know, one of the other things that's really important in this daily battle, and I have a whole chapter on this too, is you don't make your house a no zone. It can't be, no, you can't do that. No, you can't do that. No, you can't do this. You have to be able to help your children make alternative choices that are fun and enjoyable for them. And again, this is about finding joy in parenting um, God's way. And it's actually woven all throughout every chapter on the book about how to do that. Now, it could be argued, well, uh, Rebecca, here's the challenge. Uh, There are so many arenas, as we've suggested, that uh, parents are battling today. My goodness, how could I ever hope to inoculate them against everything that's out there? And I guess that's the difference between uh, teaching them item by item, 
versus in equipping them with the ability to think on their own based on a set of moral guidelines and standards that would serve as the compass or the guidelines for them so that when they run into things that are not good and not healthy for them, be it the source of the Internet, television, social media, whatever, that they've got the capacity to be able to engage in some judgment call on their own. That's exactly right. I mean, the purpose of my book is not to tell parents to build walls around your children to protect them from the world. Number one, that's a bad idea. Number two, you can't do that. You do exactly what you just said. It's about developing in them an internal moral compass and showing them how to use it. Because your children are going out into the world every day. In just a few short years, they're going to be walking down that graduation aisle and out your door. And, you know, our children are not always going to make the right choices. But my husband and I determined they are going to know the difference between right and wrong. They're not going to live, leave our house wondering what is right. And they're not going to leave our house believing in all the lies that the culture is trying to teach them. And it makes them stronger. And it uh, makes them really protecting them from a lot of the negative consequences that their peers are going to be suffering. Um, if you teach them these strong moral principles when they're young and do it every day. And of course, that also takes some commitment on our behalf, doesn't it? I mean, it would be nice to say as a parent, well, here's this list of do's and don'ts that I've typed up. So just keep this in your back pocket. And whenever a question comes up, just refer to the list. I mean, it's, it's, it's more complicated than that, as we're suggesting. And I would imagine that in terms of helping them understand and, and create the ability to reason through and know the difference in the variety of ways in which they will be bombarded by all of these sources with the kind of tough choices that they have to make. And that, I guess, at the end of the day, Rebecca, comes simply through time and interaction with our kids. You, you can't do this by remote, can you? No, you can't. I mean, you know, the world will try to tell you, oh, don't worry, it's about quality time versus quantity time. You know, it's actually both. I mean, God gave little babies to moms and dads for a reason. It's because we are supposed to hold them in our arms and in our hearts and teach them what is true and what is not true. And you can't do that in just a few minutes a day. Uh, you do it over a lifetime. You do it by creating family time. You know, I've got a chapter in there on that, and that's what it's called. And I use the word create very deliberately because you're not going to find extra family time. You have to create it in today's culture. Um, you have to learn how to have meaningful discussions with your children. And I provide some tips that work for others um, that are in the book as well. And uh, again, you know, when children are in a home where they know mom and dad are committed to them, where they understand, you know, where the boundaries are and what the foundation is, children, study after study reveals they're happier, they're healthier emotionally, um, they're less likely to be involved in drugs or sexual activity outside of marriage. There's just a thousand and one reasons why you should be engaged in purposeful parenting and, and starting afresh and anew tonight if, if you've not done that before. And going back to my notion that a, a simple list of do's and don'ts is not going to cut it, is modeling important here so that as the child watches you make the decisions and go through just day-to-day -day household life and what it means to be a parent and the child is watching you is it important that you're you're modeling consistency in terms of setting the example 
Yes, it's always important. I've actually got chapters there about helping to teach your children how to to make good friendships. And uh, part of that includes, why don't you, mom and dad, take a few minutes to examine your own friendships? Um, your children are watching the friends you choose. Um, there's information there. You know, a lot of people worry about their kids dealing with peer pressure. Well, there are a lot of moms and dads that don't deal too well with peer pressure ourselves. And um, so there's information there, kind of look like a little workbook at the end of each chapter to help parents kind of get their own house in order and realize uh, that they do have to set that a good example. And your children are really, they're dying for you to do that. They're just waiting for you to step up to the plate and really practice what we preach. And, um, and, and again, a lot of joy comes from when you do that and live that way. And Rebecca, I would imagine they're probably watching a lot closer than we would suspect. In other words, the inconsistency of saying to a child, uh, it's not okay to steal gum, uh, you know, walking through the uh, the five and dime store. Does it even exist anymore? <laughs> it's not okay to steal gum. So you're, you're trying to instill in your child the notion that it's not okay to steal. And then for your child to overhear a conversation between you and your spouse about how you've underreported uh, you know, some side income from your income taxes, they're, they're going to catch on to those things, aren't they? Oh, they're totally going to catch on to those things. And, you know, when you tell your child, if you get a phone call and you say, tell them I'm not here, and you think, oh, that's just a little white lie, a lie is a lie, and your children are learning from you. And they know that, oh, mom and dad tell me it's wrong to lie, but they lie to their friends. So it really starts with examining, you know, your own heart and home and, and mom and dad sitting down and, and realizing, you know what, if we've made mistakes, it's okay. We're going to start over. One of, one of the things I find um, that's so sad is parents of teenagers, oftentimes they'll hear me speak and they'll think beginning, oh, it's too late. I've done it all wrong. And my, my answer to that is as long as there is breath in you, there was there's always a chance to repair and restore and make stronger a relationship in your life. And along with that, um, our kids are looking for heroes. In a day and an age when there are so many anti-heroes out there, wouldn't it be nice whether you're starting when, you know, the kids are, are six days old, six years, or, you know, they're in your 60s and you're in your 80s, to be able to, to have a son or a daughter say, mom was my hero, dad is my hero? Oh, my goodness, it's so important. Um, and again, I have another chapter on that because today hero is confused with sports star, right? Oh, yes. Or movie <laughs> star or recording star. And it's very important to teach our children what makes a real hero and what a hero is so that they can learn to do heroic things in their own life. You know, a hero is, is most often described as somebody who makes sacrifices on behalf of another. And uh, we need to teach our children that and find heroes in your own family to start with. Maybe you had a, a you know a great grandfather or grandfather who who has served in World War II, or you know, or maybe you have a friend whose son is a soldier in Afghanistan or something. Look for heroes close to home, um, to and tell their stories to your children and show them as role models. You know, rather than that latest basketball star who's in trouble again um, for the way he's treated his girlfriend or something. Um, very important for our kids to understand that. Yeah, and, and helping them to understand the difference, as Rebecca points out. Uh, newsflash for a lot of kids and parents out there. 
Kim Kardashian's not a hero. Kanye West is not a hero. But there are plenty of heroes out there, and you can start to influence your child in a big way to become a hero in their eyes as well, no matter when you start. And I think that's an encouraging message that Rebecca Hegelin has shared with us today. The book is called 30 Ways in 30 Days to Strengthen Your Family. And what's great about the book is it's it's pretty interactive, and um, a lot of the uh, sort of the backside to all of these uh, insights uh, are followed up on by... Rebecca's daughter. And so you get a chance to kind of see the parental perspective, child's perspective, what all that means and how that dialogue, how that interaction, how that quality time can come about. The book again, 30 Ways in 30 Days to Strengthen Your Family. It's author, our guest on this edition of Lifeline, Rebecca Hagelin. Rebecca, thanks so much for your time today. The book, by the way, published by David Cook, available in bookstores throughout the San Francisco Bay Area. You'll find it at the usual suspects, Amazon.com, as well as on Rebecca's website, TheResurgent.com. That's TheResurgent.com. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to KFAX.com. That's KFAX.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time round, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here. Here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. And I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flint. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.